1: Hello, Old Sports, and welcome to the Hello, Old Sports podcast on the Sports History Network. We'd like to thank you once again for joining us into our weekly journey back into the history of sports. Andrew, how are you today?
2: I am doing well, Dan. I'm a little envious of you as anyone who doesn't know when we record, we Obviously, when the podcast goes up, it's just an audio medium, but we record over Zoom where we're looking at each other, and my brother's uh, DC basement has been replaced with a very tropical backdrop down in Florida, which as I'm getting ready for you know half a foot of snow tomorrow, I'm starting to think you made the right decision to decamp to Florida for a month.
1: Yeah, my wife and I, uh, Allison, who was good enough to make her first appearance on the podcast last week for the Super Bowl trivia episode, who was the host, asked us the questions she and I absconded. We are in week two of four in Florida, and uh, we're going to mention in a moment uh, that we have a guest here today on the Hello Old Sports podcast who's coming to us from Texas and Most of the country, including places like Texas, uh, that you wouldn't normally expect to be blanketed with snow have been over the last few days. So it's been a very nice time to be in Florida. We're enjoying the warm weather and I'm very much glad that we made this decision. So as we mentioned last week, we've decided to devote a good chunk of the month of February to basketball we in the first few months of the podcast we did a lot of baseball a lot of football some other things we did a little bit of you know did a couple boxing episodes you know here and there but we hadn't done many episodes that were devoted specifically to basketball and we've got a bunch that we've done we've got a bunch coming up and when we talked about some basketball topics one of the first things that came to mind was the new york knicks of the 90s and This is the first topic that we've covered, I think, that I sort of remember in its entirety. You know, there were obviously when we did an episode on Army football, we took it right up to the present day. Or when we talked about the heavyweight boxing championship, we took it right up to the present day. So there were bits and pieces that we remember. But this is probably the topic that I have the most firsthand memory and knowledge of. We are honored to be joined by a guest, uh, an author by the name of Paul Nepper, and he wrote a book that I'm going to hold up, even though that won't mean anything because we're on audio. But he wrote a book entitled The Knicks of the 90s, Ewing, Oakley, Starks and the Brawlers that almost won it all. I read it over the weekend in preparation for this episode, and I was I was impressed by some of the things that I hadn't realized, but I was also just as glad to remember some of the things that I did remember. Although when you're talking about the Knicks of the nineties, unfortunately there's a lot more or there's just as much, I should say there's just as much bad as good to remember. So Paul Nepper, thank you so much for joining us here on the hello world sports podcast.
3: It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me guys
1: so why don't you uh before we sort of dive into the heart of this why don't you tell us a little bit first of all about yourself and about your background with the knicks and what led you to want to write this book
3: yeah so i i um i grew up in i lived in queens till i was eight years old and moved out to long island um and uh a little bit a little more about my background um I'm a lawyer um, and practiced law for a number of years, mostly in New York City, and then I moved down to Austin. Um, I did some writing for Bleacher Report on the side. I did some work for another startup website that kind of didn't make it. Um, And uh, so I had a little writing history and a huge love affair with this 90s Knicks team. So as I said, I grew up in New York. I used to go to... um, my dad would take me to a game or two a year, not a lot, but you know, a couple and I had a, my cousin, Joe would take me to the game sometimes. And I watched the games on TV religiously. I just absolutely loved those teams. And it was a few years ago. Um, as you guys know that, you know, the last 20 years, have been pretty miserable for Knicks fans. So um, a few years ago, I was thinking, I was thinking about the nineties Knicks as I, as I do more than I probably should because the recent past has been so bleak. Um, and, uh, and I thought, and I, I thought uh, you know, somebody should really write a book on those teams. And uh, kind of the next thought was, well, why not me? Um, and I went from there. And then I started to think, you know, well, uh, I'm pretty sure there hasn't been a book on the 90s Knicks. Let me make sure about that. So I did some research and made sure there wasn't. Um, and, and then really thought it through, does this work as a book? You know, is this, would this be better suited as a long article or, you know, something like that. And I felt like, um, those teams were so beloved by New Yorkers and Knicks fans everywhere. And I think they were important to the game of basketball. They were, uh, important to the 1990s basketball, um, their style of play led to several rule changes in the game. And I think that makes them significant. Um, I felt like there was a lot of drama, uh, with, with, you know, interpersonal inter team issues, uh, with players and coaches, but more so the rivalries with, with the bulls and the heat and the pacers, I thought was very fascinating and I think the last thing for me um, that, that convinced me this could be a, a, a book that would really work is the characters. Uh, I think really any book, the characters make a book. And I felt like the Knicks had a lot of great characters from that time, from Ewing and Riley and Oakley and Starks to Ben Gundy and, you know, people like Latrell Sprewell and his whole backstory and Charlie Ward, the Heisman trophy winner. And, Larry Johnson, who had been grandmama and had a huge persona himself. And so I, I decided to go ahead with it.
1: I think, first of all, I think it definitely is something that's worthy of a book length treatment. And there have been, there've been other things. There've been a lot of articles every once in a while, whether it's ESPN or one of these other sports websites, they'll do sort of a throwback to the nineties, Knicks, you know, sort of a long form, Article type of thing, but like you said, this is the first book. There's a couple books out there that were written contemporaneously on individual seasons and that type of thing, but right. this right. is the first book. And is this the first book that you've written? Yes, it is. So how do you how do you and we'll get to the like I said we'll get to the meat of it, but how do you get started with something like this? Somebody who's never written a book before. What's kind of your first step?
3: Yeah, it's it's a little daunting, right? I mean, my first step was. I, I, I want to read everything that has ever been written about written, you know, uh, uh, movies, podcasts, anything I could get my hands on um, about those teams, uh, you know, involving people from those teams. So, um, you know, for example, I read, I read every New York times article on the Knicks from like the late eighties, the early two thousands, um, which is a lot. Um, and then, but then a bunch of other newspapers as well. Um, everything, Every Sports Illustrated over that time period, every Sports Illustrated article over that time period. Um, I search for any podcasts involving, you know, Van Gundy's done a number, um, Patrick's done a couple. Any, any, anybody tangentially related to that? Any book that's been somewhat related to that? Um, John Stocks wrote an autobiography. You know, um, um, Mike Wise and Frank Isola wrote a. I solo wrote a book about the 99 season, um, which was very helpful. Um, just
1: balling. Doc, Doc,
3: autobiog- yes, ballin'. Doc Rivers wrote an autobiography. Yes. Just balling. Doc Rivers wrote an autobiography while he was with the Knicks. Um, you know, uh, Pat Riley wrote a book. So there's a lot of books there, there were 30 for thirties, you know, the, the Miller time 30 for 30. Um, you know, I don't know. And then just other things that are, you know, I mean, and, edit- Reggie Miller wrote a book. Hakeem Lajuan wrote a book. And I felt those were central figures. So I read their books. So just anything I could get my hands on, um, just compiling all that, all the information that was available. And then once I had that, the next step was to try and find additional information in, in the form of interviews.
1: I want to ask you about the interviews in a moment, but the other thing I wanted to note, and I don't know of how many people listening to the podcast, this will be of interest to but but the book was published by McFarland and as those who listen to the podcast will know I am a frequent reader and an even more frequent purchaser of sports books and in fact one of the things that I do in addition to this podcast is I help out with another podcast called baseball by the book which is by done by a guy named Justin McGuire where he interviews a different baseball author every week and um my role there is to read one of the books every couple months and write up some questions for him and a lot of the books that are sort of about these specific sports topics tend to be published by McFarland so if you don't mind just to tell us for a minute or two about McFarland and their sort of unique role in the sports books world and you're working with them
3: Sure. Um, yeah, you know, they're, they're, I guess you call them an the independent publisher, smaller publisher, whatever, whatever it may be. And they do, um, they specialize in, uh, what you might call out of kind of niche topics. I, I know that baseball, especially, they have a lot, they have a lot of books printed. And, and so people that are very into certain aspects of sports, be it baseball history or other kind of niches within sports, um, tend to flock to McFarland and, uh, and you know, they were very interested in my book and I liked that they had that history of working with sports books. So I thought it would be a, a nice, a nice fit for me. And we went from there.
1: Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. So if you're a sports fan, fan of sports history, and if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably either a close friend or family member of Andrew and I, or a fan of sports history. So check out McFarland and some of the, some of the books that they've put out. Now the players, the, you talked to a lot of players. I'm looking right now about in the list of the ones that you talked to. Tell us a little bit about some of the players that you spoke to and how those guys were to talk to.
3: Yeah. You know, the, the, for me, the most interesting and exciting in a way were, were, I think Oakley and Starks um, as a uh, kind of the, the old fanboy in me was, was excited to talk to them. Um, and they were great. Oakley was very, very Oakley. (laughs) He was (laughs) just kind of grumpy, but not, it's hard. I don't, I don't want to, I don't want that to come off wrong. Like he complained a lot. Um, Not about me. He was very helpful. He was very friendly. He was actually extremely friendly and accommodating. He just, that's just his (laughs) his nature. He just complains a lot. And he wanted to talk a lot about, James Dolan and that whole mess and and things that have gone on recently with him personally. And I, I kept trying to redirect him back to the nineties. And, and you don't, you don't redirect Charles. Oakley
1: (laughs) (laughs) Physically or verbally.
3: (laughs) Yeah. So that was, uh, that was, that was interesting. Um, You know, the interesting thing is though, uh, a lot of times I I found the lesser guys um, were often a lot more, a lot more helpful than some of the big name guys. And, and I think for a few reasons, I think one that they're not, you know, like a guy like Carlton McKinney, who had a cup of coffee with the Knicks, like people aren't calling him every, every, uh, every week to get a quote or ask him about this story or that story. It's unusual. And so I think he's plus he's not a big name, so he doesn't really have anything to hide. So I think he's a little more a lot. Some of those guys are a little more open and honest. Um, some of the memories are a little, a little more crystal clear in their heads, I think, because, you know, I ask Oak about something that happened. I'm getting down in the, the guts of it, and I'm like, okay, asking him about an incident that happened in 1995, and he has no idea what year that happened or this and that. You know, he's in New York yeah. 10 years, and they blend together. You get a guy who spent one year with the team, or perhaps even less, a guy like a guy DeMarco Johnson, who I talked to, who was just there for a training camp. He knows, obviously he knows what year it happened. He probably knows like on the third day of training camp it happened because he was only there for two weeks. So a lot of times those lesser known guys um, are are really helpful.
2: And those guys probably just by nature of it come to it more objectively because they're not going to be firsthand involved in most of those stories. Whereas, you know, if you're asking a Charles Oakley about some – let's just hypothetically some sort of squabble he might've had with Ewing or whoever, you're naturally going to get his side of the story. Whereas if it's a guy who wasn't involved, who was pretty much trying to do his best to blend in, he's going to say, well, this guy saw it this way and this is how, you know, so I could see where that would definitely be helpful just from a sort of a cutting to the, the chase standpoint as well.
3: Right. Absolutely. And th- the other thing I found is it doesn't matter how big are a name or how small a name they are. It's it's a personality thing. Some guys are just duds, you know? And some guys are some guys are excellent storytellers and like to talk and some guys are quiet by nature and and don't feel just aren't as smooth and comfortable and and don't tell stories very well and uh and and that's interesting too and which has nothing to do in a sense with with how big or small a name they are. All
1: right, so Why don't we get into some of this and just for sort of for the audience, let's just, I'm just going to kind of give sort of a a brief overview of how this all got started, I guess. So the, the Knicks, the golden age was 70. They won a championship. They go back to the finals in 72. They, they win another championship in 73. And then things kind of go downhill really quickly. They, I think Willis Reed got hurt the, the following year in the playoffs in 74, and then he was retired. And then, you know, other guys, Bradley retired DeBuscher retired. And then for the seventies, they kind of, they limp along. They might've had one or two playoff years. Um, I know when they had Michael Ray Richardson, they were decent for a year or two. And then Holzman comes back and coaches uh, a little bit in the late seventies. And then they kind of go back into the dark ages in the early eighties. And then, they have sort of this one shining year in 1984 with Bernard King, where they beat Detroit in five games in the first round of the playoffs. And then they take Boston to the, to a seventh game in the, what would have been, I guess the semifinals, Eastern conference semifinals Now, I believe, if I'm remembering this correctly, Boston blew them out in Game 7. But nonetheless, they took them to that Game 7. And that was sort of the one team pre-Ewing in the 80s that people look back at as really good. And it's kind of funny, too, because the Bernard King era was really just that one season. And then the following year, they start off slow. King gets hurt. He has that horrific injury where he ends up missing close to two seasons. And that's when they draft Ewing and they're still being coached by Hubie Brown. And they still have some of the guys If you know, Cartwright is on the team who I saw, Paul, I saw that you interviewed Cartwright. Uh, Trent Tucker was on that team. And, but, but then a lot of the guys who would be around even a couple years later weren't there yet now. And so they draft Ewing, Ewing and Bernard King never actually play a game together. Ewing uh, King is hurt for the rest of that entire year, I believe. And then I think it's, in, and I don't know if either of you know, I think it's in Ewing's second year that Bernard King comes back for six or seven games at the end of the season.
3: Yeah. Uh, yes. He played, I think seven games in the, the end of the second year, uh, the end of Patrick's second year. Uh, but Patrick was hurt those games. Yeah. So as, as you, as you alluded to, they, they never actually got on the court together.
1: A couple of years ago, I was watching on NBA TV right around the All Star break, and they they show all the old All Star games, and uh, I don't remember what year it was. It was when King was on the Bullets, and Ewing. I believe it was King threw a, a behind like a behind the back alley oop to Patrick Ewing in this All Star game, and I remember this. This is just a couple of years ago that so I remember just watching that and thinking this is what could have been, because, and you talk about this in the book and. You know, it's something that's been talked about all over the place is that Ewing, at least in his prime, never had that second star. And so and King, you know, went on. He was an all-star at least one more time after he left the Knicks that that year with Washington. So perhaps in retrospect, if they had held on to Bernard King, it would have been a little bit of a different trajectory. Now for me the story kind of starts and maybe this is because it's when i became a fan and when i started watching but to me the year that was kind of the first real good year and you start the and i want to ask you about that you start the book with the riley era with the 91 92 season to me the 88 89 season when they were i think 52 and 30 with uh with patino and rick patino's last year is second and last year that to me was sort of the, sort of the uh, the first year that they were really good. They were contenders. I remember Ewing being talked about for as an MVP candidate. I was in kindergarten, and I just remember being so into that team. So to me, at least, that's kind of when they'd been in the playoffs a year before. But that to me is when they start to get really really good. That's when they started to be a contender. So then they kind of languish for a couple years and they, you know, they make the playoffs, but they, they have the one year under Stu Jackson where they, I think they made the second round and the following year with John McLeod. And then they kind of pick it up with Riley. So Paul, why did you try, why did you choose to, to start the book with Riley?
3: Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, because I really toyed with, um, a few different options as to where to start the book and just the, the, um, the period of time that the book would cover in general. Um, I thought about doing it from when Patrick got there. Um, I, I thought about doing just the Riley years. I thought about a few different variations and ultimately I felt like um, it was really the 90s when, and you're right, that, that 88, 89 team was was really good. The bomb squad. Uh, Rick Pitino did an incredible job. He was way ahead of his time. Um, people remember him for his failed time with the Celtics, but he did an exceptional job with the Knicks. But then they were lost for a couple seasons after he left. So I felt like Riley coming in really took the team to a new level and and, and elevated them to championship contenders. Um, and, and I think that really, you know, for the most part, most of the 90s from that point on, from when Riley got there until – right before Van Gundy left, really around 2000, they were uh, right in the mix for, to, to advance to the finals. So um, I, felt like, I, I felt like it was a tremendous cultural shift. Maybe a better answer to that. I felt like there was a tremendous cultural shift as well when Riley got there. And that's really when they took the jump. And although they, although they took the jump with, with Patino, and Patino's second year there, it wasn't sustainable. They didn't, well, maybe it was sustainable, it wasn't sustained. Um, Mm -hmm. Riley, when Riley came in, they took that jump and they sustained it throughout the decade. So I felt like that was the the place to start.
2: Yeah. That that last year before Riley, they were a playoff team, but they were 39 and 43. They got swept by the bulls in the first round the next year, which I'm sure we're going to get into. They jumped 12 games, um, in Riley's first year. So, you know, it seems like it's night and day between those two teams yeah it was a playoff team but not nobody would have considered them a serious threat going into the 91 playoffs and they sure as heck were in 92
3: right and, and the other thing i would add is there, there was a lot of they seemed very directionless uh after that 1991 season in that as i talk about in the book patrick wanted to leave which is a huge thing um they there were a ton of trade rumors in that in 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 that year before Riley came. They tried to trade Mark Jackson. Um, they did trade Rod Strickland for Maurice Cheeks. There was a lot of turnover and unhappiness and uh, uncertainty. And Riley really brought in a sense of stability and direction to the franchise.
1: There was a playoff game. I think it was. I don't know if it was. 91 or 90 um whatever whatever year i think it was when did cheeks cheeks came to the knicks for in 89 90 there was one uh the last playoff game that year that they played or maybe it was when they beat boston in game five in 1990 where cheeks did not sit a a minute mark jackson 48 minutes yep and And he was an older uh, he was an older
3: player at that time too
1: and I have a sort of an interesting uh, memory of that when they brought him in, and Andrew may remember this a little bit too. Our father was born and raised in the Philly area, and he had been a fan of the Sixers teams of the '80s, especially the um, you know the team that won in '83. And so he used to always talk about Dr. J and Moses Malone and Mo Cheeks. And all of a sudden, this guy that your father would talk about from what seemed like another era was the Um, was on the on the Knicks in the early 90s. And it's funny because there's all this talk about how Ewing never had another Hall of Famer with him, really. But he did have he did have Maurice Cheeks for a year and a half in the early 90s. So. But okay, so we go to 91, 92, and he talked a little bit about how. Riley was hesitant to take the job and then Ewing didn't really want to stay. can you tell me a little bit about, um, and then Ewing was almost traded for Chris Mullen, I believe you wrote. So, tell me a little bit about sort of the, the decision making process um, in that summer of ninety one for both Riley and Ewing.
3: Yeah, so um, the, the Knicks they fired their general manager and president in in like uh, February March of ninety one, and came in comes Dave Checkets, and he becomes a team president. And he's faced with this situation where Patrick wants to become a free agent. He want, Patrick wants to leave, period. Um, he just had enough. He, he Checkets told me, talking to Riley, talking to Ewan um, when he got, got the job, was like talking to an orphan who had lived in several different foster homes. Um, he just, he'd had, I think it was five coaches in his first six seasons, three different general managers, uh, lots of trades. There was just no stability there. Um, Patrick was approaching 30 already, and, he, and, and I think he felt like, I, I, I can't win here. You know, this franchise is a mess. And he wanted out. He had this interesting clause in his contract where he could get out of his contract. He, could be, he would become a free agent if he wasn't one of the top, one of the four highest paid players in the league. Yeah. And so he and his agent, David Falk, argued that he was not one of the four highest paid players in the league. And Nick said he was, and the, 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 the contention was over Larry Bird. So both sides agreed. Michael Jordan, Hakeem Olajuwon, and, and John Williams of all people made more money than Patrick Ewing. Larry Bird's salary was less than Patrick Ewing, but he he had a signing bonus in there that put him significantly above Patrick. Um, and so Patrick said with the signing bonus, it's more, and he's not one of the top four, blah, blah, blah. So, um... While that's going on, Patrick, David Falk is talking to the Golden State Warriors and telling them, hey, give Chris Mullen a new contract that is higher than Patrick's, which would trigger the out clause in Patrick's contract. Patrick becomes a free agent, and then I will steer him to Golden State, and you will have Patrick Ewing. Um, the Knicks got hold of this, threatened to sue the Warriors. That fell through. Ultimately, Patrick tried to become a free agent. It went to arbitration. He lost the case. He still pushed the Knicks to trade him. He wanted out of there. And what happened was, in comes Riley. You know, Chekis to, uh, told me, he said, I wanted to get the best coach available. And Riley was that guy. And so he's trying to woo Riley and making him a tremendous offer. But Riley Riley didn't want to take on a, a rebuilding project. Riley only wanted the Knicks job if you stayed. And so Chekens is kind of doing There's this back and forth where he's trying to get a commitment from Patrick to stay to get Riley to come. And he's trying to get a commitment from Riley to come because he thinks that will help convince Patrick to stay. Um, so there's this little dance going on. Uh, ultimately, Riley, I think Riley believed in his ability to get Patrick to stay, to convince Patrick to stay. And the Knicks, uh, he agreed to come on board. and. Uh, you know, Ewing lost the the arbitration case, and so the Knicks refused to trade him, and ultimately he came around as well, I think, with some help from Riley. It's fascinating because it also demonstrates the difference in the, in the league back then. The, the players didn't have the power that they have now. Um, if, if if that had took place in 2020 instead of 1991, Patrick Ewan would have been gone. He would have, he would have forced his way out of New York, but players didn't really have that power then
1: this will be a theme that I think gets weaved throughout the entire conversation and throughout the entire decade. But I think maybe it starts with this. Maybe it even starts earlier than this, but this sort of uneasy relationship between Ewing, the organization and the fans, you always got the feeling that Ewing didn't feel entirely appreciated and the fans always felt like maybe Ewing secretly deep down didn't want to be there. So even in the good times, there were there was this sort of uneasy truce between Ewing and the fans. And you, 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 you constantly see it sort of flare up. It flares up in 95 when Don Nelson's there. It flares up later in the 90s when he's hurt and then when they finally do trade him. So never really...
2: When he's hurt and there's the whole thing about, are they better when he's not on the floor or that, you know, right. its own thing in this day, and day you know, that, that still lasts today when people talk about the Ewing theory. So I'm sure that, you know, kind of adds into it on the back end.
1: Absolutely. So 91, 92, this is my favorite team of the whole decade. and, it's my favorite team, really, for three reasons. First of all, this is probably the team that has the best chance at beating the Bulls. And I say that because they took them to a seventh game. Now, Van Gundy says that that 93 team was the best team he ever coached. That was the team that lost to the Bulls in six. That You know, the whole the Charles Smith year and everything, that was the year the Knicks were the one seed, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. And then, obviously, there's... You know, everybody thinks, well, what if they'd gotten to play the Bulls in ninety-seven if the fight hadn't happened with Miami? But to me, ninety-two is their best chance to beat the Bulls because that's the only team that takes the Bulls to seven games. And the only the only Knicks team to take the Bulls to seven games. And I believe during the Jordan, the six Jordan championship years, only two teams ever took the Bulls to seven games. And that was the Knicks yeah. in 92. Mm-hmm. And then in the last year, the Pacers.
3: That's right. Yeah. Never in the finals, but yes, those two, those two times. Yeah.
1: So that's the reason one, why it's my favorite team. Number two is that it's kind of a nice combination of the new guys. This is Starks. I believe, I don't know, maybe Starks or Mason played a, you know, I ha- played a few games in, in 91. I, I think Starks at least did. I believe I'm um, just looking at the roster here. Um yeah, Starks played a little bit in um in 91 as did Mason, but it's the first real year of prominence for both Starks and Mason. It's Greg Anthony is another one who joins a team for the first time in that 91-92 season, but then you still have a lot of the guys from the Patino years, Jackson, Gerald Wilkins, even Kiki Vandeweghe, And so I really like them for that reason. It's kind of like a cool mix of the two teams. And then when people ask me, and I will want to hear both of your answers to this question, too, at some point. But when people ask me who my favorite Nick of the 90s is, it's a guy who's on this team and is only on the team for one year. And that's the X-Man. Xavier McDaniel I loved him then I still and you write about this in the book I still think that had they held on to him for a couple more years that maybe they would have gotten over the hump one of those years and I I saw that you interviewed him so tell me a little bit about interviewing him what he meant to the team for that one year he was there just the whole deal
3: yeah, so X is uh, X. X loves big fans. Love who were there. Then they love X, myself included. Um, and it's it's wild because he was only there one year, and he's you know I, this the the book very much ends up being a lot of what ifs, right? Because when you when you come that close, you know the Knicks went to the finals twice. One game, of course, one year, of course, they they went to Game Seven, and then in Game Six, were within a shot of winning a championship. You can't get any closer. But uh, they went to the conference finals two other times. There were a couple other years where they were derailed by injuries or fights. But they were always right there. And when you're that continuously that close, there are a lot of things that potentially, we don't know, but potentially could have put you over the top. So there are a lot of what-if moments and and incidents and and people. And and one of them that always comes up is X. Um, to, to fill people in, uh, McDaniel got there for the – 91, 92 season, um, X had been an All Star a couple times in, in his younger days in in Seattle, but had a couple of, had a serious knee injury and wasn't quite the same player anymore. He was still a very good player, but not not quite at the All Star level. Um, and X had a very uh very mundane regular season. You know, he didn't. He was inconsistent. He didn't do very much. I would go so far as say he was he was a bit of a disappointment in the regular season. And then come postseason, he was a different player. And he was great in the first round against Detroit. And then against against Chicago, I mean he was he was fantastic. He was he was the Knicks' second best player in that series after Patrick. Um, he he gave he he got inside Pippen's head big time. I mean he was roughing roughing Pippen up a lot. You know, the Knicks strategy back then was obviously the, the Bulls were the more athletic team and the Knicks were built on their size and toughness and going into the Chicago series was like, all right, we're going to beat this team with defense and physicality. And Pippen was very much a target at that time. There were questions about his mental toughness and 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 X-Man really went right at him and banged him and bumped him and, and shoved him and elbowed him throughout the series and and he got in his head. And in addition to that, X, X played great. I mean, he was scoring, he was rebounding. He, he, he had a great series. Um, The way he said it to me, he said, you know, Pippen was a great, the NBA is a game of matchups and Pippen was a great matchup for me. He said, because I had the athleticism to keep up with him. And he said, Scotty didn't like, Scotty didn't like to bang. And X said, I could bang with him. And usually he was playing perimeter players who he didn't have to worry about being back down, down low. And x man did that to him. And X was very honest with me. He said, look, he said, look, he said, James Worthy kicked my ass. He had my number. Mark Aguirre, he would take me all day long. But but for whatever reason, Scottie Pippen was a really good matchup for me. And, of course, the Knicks lost in in seven games. And that summer – X was a free agent. And the Knicks really put him on the back burner um, because of the the Larry Bird exception, which allows you to go over the salary cap to re-sign your own players. So the thinking was the Knicks wanted to go out and add a couple of other pieces, um, and then they could come back and sign X once those guys were in the fold because they could go over the cap to do it. If they signed X first, they wouldn't have any cap space left, and you can't go over the cap to sign guys from other teams. So they put them on the back burner. They tried to trade for Harvey Grant, who was Horace's twin brother. Um, they looked at a lot of options for backup centers. They looked at moves to add shooting, um, and, and they also looked to trade for Charles Smith. And, and this whole time, meanwhile, it's, it's, it, we're getting now getting into September. It's like mid-September, training camps are opening in two or three weeks, and the Knicks haven't so much as made X an offer, nothing. And X, finally, at that point, he said, you know, he went, he's like, I, I had to, you know, training camp was coming soon. I had, to, I had to get paid. So he went up and met with the Celtics, and, and the legendary Red Auerbach made him an offer, and he said, take it or leave it. So you're not leaving this room without, without telling me yes or no. And X actually called Patrick. He and Patrick were were good friends. They'd gone back to, they'd played in tournaments together in in college. Um, They were the same year in the draft. And X said to him, hey, man, like, I want to come back to New York, but they haven't made me an offer, and I have this offer from the Celtics. What do you think I should do? And Patrick told me, uh, X told me, Patrick said to him, if they haven't made you an offer yet, they're not going to make you an offer, and you need to take care of your family. And that's what X did. The Knicks say they were stunned. Um, Pat Riley was stunned, uh, specifically. Um, Checkett said he felt they had an understanding that they would take care of X later on. I talked to David Falk, who was x Man's agent, and he said there was no understanding. And he said, to the contrary, I'd been trying to negotiate an extension for x Man for for close to a year. And, you know, Checkett gave every indication that he would not go over $2 million a year. For, for a contract, and I had no reason to believe he was bluffing. I, I, I believed him. And so when this offer was on the table and he had, didn't have one from the Knicks, we we took it. And it was a shame because the, the Knicks were upset and sad that he left. The other issue was checkers to, told me there was concern about x Man's knees, that the team doctor said, don't sign this guy. His knees aren't going to hold up for another few years. Sure enough, X was out of the league a few years later. Uh, and not that old of an age, Um, you know, maybe like 32, he was out of the league um, because of his knees. So there was something to that, but it was very unfortunate because X was, and not only did he play the Bulls so well, he was such a perfect fit for that team, Um, that just the the toughness, uh, the intimidation, he he fit in so well. And uh, as Nick fans will tell you, in tremendous contrast to Charles Smith, who who both his game and personality did not, did not fit the makeup of that team.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And it, you still see, and you can find this on YouTube. um, There's the intro to 92 when the Knicks and the Bulls played on Christmas, Christmas of 92. And so McDaniel was gone by this point. And this is find it on YouTube. Um, We we can't put it up, but um, find it on YouTube. And uh it's an intro. And even though McDaniel's not on the,
2: it, I say, if you search Nick's bulls, Christmas day, 92, it comes up. It'll, at will it to the last time I checked. So,
1: and so I think there's a few important points here. First of all, McDaniel kind of sets the tone of get in the face of the bulls. Don't back out, don't back down from Jordan and then sort of, um, you know, at the same time, beat the hell out of Pippen. <laughs> but, Um, McDaniel sort of sets that tone. Now, Oakley was an in-your-face guy. Mason was an in-your-face guy. It's not like these guys needed any help. But the one who kind of sets the tone from that right off the bat is McDaniel. And I remember when they went to Chicago and they won that game one in 92, that was like, that was a shock. That was, wow, we've really got a series on our hands. They beat them 94 to 89. I'm just looking here to see. Um, and you're right, you know, 34 points for Ewing, but McDaniel 16 and, you know, Ewing with a double double. And so all of a sudden the Knicks are maybe showing that they can hang with this team. And, you know, they go back and forth. They win game one, they go down to one, but then they win game four in New York lose five, win six, and then they go back to Chicago and they just get absolutely obliterated in game seven. Uh, one, I think it was 110 to 81, is that what I see there? 110 to 81, so they lose by almost 30 points. And before we get to 93, I, I want to kind of divert a little bit because you're reminding me of a couple different things that I think it might be important to state before we go much further. And Andrew, uh, plays a little bit of a role in this. Um, that last game was on the weekend. It was on May 17th, which, uh, I hope Andrew doesn't mind telling me, uh, hope Andrew doesn't mind me telling the audience is the day before Andrew's birthday on May 18th. And I believe that game was a Sunday afternoon game that May 17th. And the, I remember, and we had Andrew's birthday party with our uncles and aunts and cousins and everybody. And at at a certain point, going down, going down in the, in the basement to watch the game and then pretty soon realizing that there wasn't going to be much worth watching on this game. And so, you know, deciding that, you know, at the age of, you know, I was 10 and Andrew would have been six deciding, you know, hey, we can go out and we can go out and play here. But. I remember just every year the in the 90s whether it was, you know, family birthday parties or Mother's Day or Easter, you know, every time there was a get-together in the spring on the weekend, you had to take the time to make time to watch the Knicks game. And I don't know if people necessarily realize just what a big deal the Knicks were in the greater New York area during this whole time period and i think um you you talked uh paul you you interviewed susan waldman which i thought was interesting you i think you talked to her right at the beginning of the of the book and susan waldman those of us you know if you if you're in the new york area you know her as sort of the yankee broadcaster her and she and john sterling of the last 25 to 30 years but i remember she would cover the Yankees for WFAN. But then when the season would end, she would go on the road with the Knicks and she would be their beat reporter. And that's not something that the, the, you know, WFAN at least hasn't done that with a, they haven't had a Knicks beat reporter. I don't think since Susan Waldman sometime in the mid nineties. And so the Knicks were a really, really big deal in New York throughout the nineties. I mean, You know, the Yankees hadn't gotten good yet. The Mets were a disaster. The Jets were a disaster. The Giants were in kind of a lull. You had the Rangers, but they were, you know, hockey in New York was always going to be the number four sport. So it really is just, it's hard to explain to somebody who may not realize, especially if you look at the way things now, when they're almost irrelevant, it's hard to explain to people just how big a deal the Knicks were in the landscape of New York sports throughout the 1990s.
2: Yeah, I think that was, you know, I, I was born in 86. So the first real year I remember is maybe the very end of 93 and then the 94 season. But yeah, it's, that was, and I think it ties into with all due respect, which is none to the Nets. <laughs> um, they were a non in fact The the Knicks were the only team that was all of New York, you know, the, Giants and Jets are always going to split even if more people are Giants fans. The Yankees and Mets are always going to split even if more people happen to be Yankee fans. The Knicks were basically, if you were an NBA basketball fan, really any time prior to the last 10 years or 20 years in, in New York, the New York area, you were a Knicks fan. So everybody rooted for the Knicks and they were sort of, you know, the New York team at that point.
1: And it was every year. It mm-hmm. was every year when it wasn't like football where it was just one game. It was... You know, you knew for most of April and May and into June, there was going to be Nick playoff basketball. I think they went something like 10 years in a row, basically the 10 years that you cover in the book, where they were in the second round at least every single year. And it kind of starts with these years with Riley. So they go into the 93, 92, 93 season and they basically do an overhaul of the roster. They keep. Ewing, obviously, they keep Starks, they keep Anthony, and they keep uh, Mason, and they keep Oakley. So basically five guys. So talk to me a little bit about the thought process behind all these roster changes that they made prior to that 92-93 season.
3: Yeah, I think um, they wanted, uh, I I mean, one thing going into that offseason, actually their number one priority was shooting. They, They felt they desperately needed uh, a guy who could consistently knock down shots because Patrick do, drew double teams and, and and he would kick it out and the guys would be open. You know, in 91-92, Joe Wilkins was a very good shooter. Starks was very streaky. And so they, they wanted someone who could knock down shots. And the big move, supposed to be a big move, was adding Rolanda Blockman, who was, I believe, a four-time All-Star and had a really nice career in... In Dallas, um, he was older then, of course. They explored a couple other options, but they wanted to they wanted to, they wanted to add a player without sacrificing one of their core players, um, and so they did that. And they drafted Hubert Davis was in in the draft. That was another attempt to get a shooter. Then there was the Big Charles Smith trade, and they wanted, uh, <clears throat> I you know, Riley really wanted more scoring. Um, with or without X-Man, he felt they needed more scoring. And, uh, and I think he was right about that. And, and you know, Charles Smith had uh, had averaged 20 points a game twice with the Clippers. Um, so he was the centerpiece of that trade. Riley wasn't very happy about having to give up Mark Jackson, but there's a couple of things. One, he got Doc Rivers, a veteran point guard back, who he felt pretty good about. And I think at that time, after Anthony's first year, they still believed that Anthony could be the point guard of the future. So he kind of, you know, reluctantly parted with Jackson to get Smith. And uh, so th- those are the major moves. You know, they brought in Herb Williams, who was a really nice backup center. You know, towards the end of his career, he was kind of, you know, he was like the crowd favorite guy who didn't get off the bench. But um, at that time, he was in his early 30s and had been a starter for a long time in the league. And he was a really nice backup center. So those were a lot of the, the additions that they made. They were trying to add scoring and, and shooting. And that's how they got there.
1: I remember being amazed at the time by just how many guys they had brought in that had formerly been with the Mavericks. Because <laughs> it, was, it, was, uh, it was Herb, it was Tony Campbell, it was Rolando Blackman. Oh, right. And
3: I, Tony Campbell, yeah. Right.
1: And then obviously the following year, they bring in Rivers. I'm sorry, they bring in Derek Harper, which is its whole other thing. And as a kid growing up in new york the dallas mavericks were probably the team that i knew the least about so at 10 years old i remember just looking at be like why are they bringing in all these guys from this team that stinks but it, it seemed to work out the other thing that i thought was interesting in reading the book and this is something i hadn't realized i from basically the moment it happened now I, I found out the truth about x-man probably you know 10 12 years ago that they really didn't want him to leave but especially you know 93 this is pre internet 92 i guess this is pre-internet days this is you know, you getting all your information secondhand, you know, I think most of it was either things I would see on TV or things my father would tell me that he'd read about in the paper or heard on WFAN. But I think I had always been sort of under the impression that Riley, after a year, decided he wanted to just overhaul this whole roster. And he was sick of all these guys. And it's funny, in reading your book, it, it, it almost felt like that maybe wasn't a hundred percent the case. You know, obviously they wanted to keep McDaniel. It seems like they had an interest in keeping Jackson. So it, it maybe wasn't this grand overhaul of the roster that we might've thought it was, or it was a grand yeah, overhaul, but I, it wasn't intended that way.
3: Right. I, I definitely don't think, uh, I definitely don't think that Riley and management viewed it as, as an overhaul. Um, I, I don't, you know, like, Obviously, Patrick was the centerpiece. They they wanted to keep hold on to Oak. They thought Starks was an important part of the future as and Mason. They did want to bring back. They did plan on bringing X Men back. They they weren't really looking to add a point guard. It was more the shooting guard and another scorer. And and ultimately felt the only the, the way to get the scorer was to part with Jackson. But they weren't they weren't shopping Jackson per se. You know they weren't they weren't looking to move him and and start over. So yeah, I I don't I never really I don't got get the impression they viewed it as an overhaul. All right.
1: So just because, just because we have a lot to cover, we, I want to make sure we're moving along at a relatively brisk clip here. So 93, they're good. They're 60 and 22. Uh, they, it's the number one seed in the Eastern conference. I think it's the only time in the, this whole run where they're the number one seed. This is, this is a 60 win team. They're a really good team. Which means they have home court against the Bulls, so they 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 win the first two rounds. They win the first two at the Garden, including in that fam- the famous John Starks dunk game where he dunks on Jordan and Grant and Pippen. And then they lose the next three, and then they go to go back to New York for Game Five, and this is that famous Charles Smith game where Charles Smith has the ball down low, he gets either blocked or stripped four times in a row by one of the big three, Jordan Pippen or Grant. And then they 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 grab the somebody grabs the ball eventually and I think they throw it down to, to Armstrong and Armstrong gets a layup. Bulls beat the Knicks by three in the garden in game five and then they go back to Chicago and I, I believe that was another one of those games where they kind of I'm pulling up the score here. I'm sorry, go ahead, Ange.
2: They lost by eight in game six, 96 to 88. I think the other thing with game five was they had won like 20-something games in a row at the Garden or something like that. So losing that game, you know, had they won that game and then still lost in Chicago, going into game seven, they still would have been at home riding a pretty long win streak, which was obviously snapped in game five.
1: You and I have talked about this in the past, and I want to ask Paul a question a second, but sort of a question for you, Andrew, and for Paul, for that matter. Does this Charles Smith thing get overblown a little bit? Because I still don't think they beat Jordan in a game seven. I I don't care if it's in New York or Chicago or on Mars. I just, Jordan never lost a game seven once he started winning them. So I I feel in a little
2: series once he started winning
1: them. Yeah, unless you count. Which I I mean. But If you don't count that one year when he came back with the 45 and everything. But, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like in a lot of ways, Charles Smith sort of gets a little bit of a bum rap.
2: I agree, Paul. What do you think on that? Is is it is it unfair to define his Knicks tenure? Forget about his whole career, but is it unfair to, de- to define his Knicks tenure by getting stripped all those times in a row in Game 5?
3: yes I think um yeah I mean I it's a lot of things you know first of all I, I think dad makes a good point about are they are they really gonna be Jordan in game seven even in New York I don't know you know maybe but that, that that's still that's still a, a tough battle and uh you know obviously we'll never know and and, and I think um and it's it's just He's a, he's a very easy scapegoat in that game. Um, the Knicks shot twenty for thirty-five from the free throw line. Okay, so if they make if they hit free throws at their normal clip, it doesn't matter. It, it never comes down to Charles Smith at the end of the game. You know, we we, we do that. We pick one we pick one play or one sequence to plays and and you know tell the whole story through that. But you know, it's forty-eight minutes of action. There are a lot of things in that game that could have gone differently that it would have never come down to Charles Smith. On the Charles Smith play, that was a play for – it was a pick and roll for Starks and Ewing. Starks passed it to Ewing, and Ewing tripped over his own feet and shuffled the ball to, to Smith, right? The play was the play was a call for, for Smith. It was Patrick who really kind of blew it. And, I mean, he's lucky it wasn't a turnover, but he, he didn't convert on the play. Charles Smith did – you know, you're talking – Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, and Horace Grant are three of the greatest defensive players of that generation, right there, swatting him, blocking him. You know, this isn't, uh, these aren't some scrubs out there. Um, I I always felt that, and in doing the research for the book more so, that that play just became very symbolic for Nick fans. It became symbolic of, they didn't like Smith because he was a bit of a disappointment. He came in, he was supposed to be a big scorer. He didn't score that much um, or as much as people expected. And he was kind of soft, and he didn't fit. Uh, I don't think he fit the team very well um, from a personality or a play standpoint. and so um, I think people didn't like him to begin with. you know I, you know John Stark shot 2 for 18 in the biggest Knicks game in the last 50 years and New Yorkers absolutely adore him I mean, right So with Smith it, it, it was about it was about more than just that sequence why he's hated so much, why he's scapegoated so much. people didn't like him to begin with. people thought he was soft. That reinforced that perception, you know, and it just came to symbolize that one sequence came to symbolize years of futility, really, against the Bulls. You know, when when we think about not being the Bulls, you just think of that imagery, and you could hear it on. You could I could still hear Marv Albert on the call. You know, Smiths stop, Smith stop again, again, Smith again. Like you could hear it. There's just there's just something very symbolic about it that jumps out at you and and yeah i feel i feel for charles smith and he gets he still gets harassed on the streets of new york like you know it it was it's a shame but i don't know i i think i i do think he gets a bad rap
2: i think you make an excellent point with starks because it's like you know starks obviously if you tell the story of john starks as a knicks fan that that game seven performance the next year comes up but it's not He's got so much other goodwill built up. I mean, you talk about, this is going to be sacrilege, but you talk about the dunk, you know, in 93 against the Bulls. They lost the next four games of that series, but it's still this iconic thing in New York just because he was such a symbol of those teams, whereas Charles Smith gets, you know, there's no remotely comparable moment for Charles Smith, so it's easy to just go right to if it wasn't for you, we would have won the championship that year, which is obviously at best a gross oversimplification of the truth.
1: So, right. Our listeners will know that Andrew and I, especially when we talk about some of these more modern topics and some of the New York topics, we tend to reference WFAN uh, at a certain consistent clip and back uh, during when, when COVID first hit and there was no, um, there was no real sports. One of the shows, the Joe and Evan show with Joe Beningo, they did a bracket of pain of sort of the worst loss in um, the, sort of the most painful moment in Joe, this one host's life. And he's a Jet fan and a Met fan and a Nick fan among, I think he's also a Ranger fan. And you think about the history of the Mets and the Jets, there's some really tough losses in World Series and, you know, teams that should have won championships. The Jets were up 10-0 in halftime of an AFC championship game one year. And he chose the Charles Smith game as the most painful moment basically, you know, for those three teams combined in the last 50 years. And so sort of like Andrew said, the name Charles Smith gets associated with that and that alone. And I've heard him interviewed a few times over the last few years. I got to say, he's a remarkably good sport about it. Given that this is a guy, I don't think he was ever an all-star, but this was a guy who had a lot of years in the league. You know, he was a, a respected pro and to just be defined by that one that one moment it is unfortunate for him so they lose in 93 they come back they basically stand pat going into 93 94 they don't really make any big personnel changes um the big thing well the one big thing is jordan retires and so he's off playing baseball and then they um halfway through the season rivers gets hurt and so all of a sudden they're looking for a point guard and they have to bring in Derek harper so they bring in harper and harper sort of slights uh sort of slides in nicely what was sort of the if there was a big one was there was there an adjustment was there a difference sort of on the court with the transition from harper to rivers or from rivers to harper i should say
3: yeah, I don't think there was a huge difference. I think um, it was a chemistry thing. You know, when a guy joins a team in the middle of a season, there was there was uh, getting uh, just getting acquainted with him and for him to learn how guys played. Um, and he, by his own admission, wasn't in top shape. As he said, when you play on a really bad team, which he was in Dallas, you pick up some bad habits. And so I think it, it took a little while for him to get back to the top of his game and for him to get acclimated to his teammates. Um, As far as the style of play, they were, he was, he was a really good uh, replacement. You know, there were, there were better point guards, you know, Harper's getting older, but he was almost a facsimile of rivers. In fact, they were born on the exact same day in the exact same year. Um, They were kind of at equal points in their careers. Both were, you know, they were point guards, but they weren't you – know, they might get you five, six assists a game. They weren't, you know, th- those necessarily a pass-first point guard. They did look to score. Neither was incredibly quick, particularly at that point of their career. They could hit an outside shot. So I think their games were actually pretty similar. And from that standpoint, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't much of an adjustment.
1: If you wrote this in the book, I didn't see it. Can you repeat that? They were born on the exact same day? <laughs>
3: Yeah, they were born the same day, yeah. Whatever year it was, they were they were they were both 32 years old and had were both born on I don't remember the date, May 15th, whatever it was, you know, 1960 yeah, sixty three whatever 61 around there. Yeah.
1: So, that brings us to I uh, got one more thing I want to ask you about. And cuz this is something else I didn't know. At some point late in the season in 94, Riley benches John Starks.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. He, uh, he, he, I I don't know. It wasn't, it wasn't incredibly personal with Starks. I think it was more that he, he wanted to change things up. Um, They hadn't been playing well and he, he wanted to kind of change the lineup and, and go a different way. Um, And Starks was an all-star that season.
0: Um, Mm -hmm.
3: And, but still, yeah, yeah. He changed it up. It wasn't, it wasn't like a, a a major incident that that led to it. He just felt um, it, it was a way of changing things up a little bit.
1: So that brings us to the famous spring of '94, and I would say that somebody could, you know, I feel like you could write a book just basically based on this whole sort of spring in '94 in new york and i know there's been various 30 for 30s done about pieces of it and there's been um i think msg network did something a few years ago called was it summer of 94 or june 94 or something like that
2: they did one i think spring of 94 spring 94 there's the 30 for 30 june 17th of 1994 which is the espn thing
1: so you got the knicks you got the rangers you got all these interesting storylines, and this is something that I maybe necessarily hadn't realized. The Knicks in the first round play the Nets. They beat them three to one. The Rangers play the Islanders in the first round. The Rangers then two series later is go against, and they play the Devils in the conference finals, beat them in seven. That was the Mateau, Stefan Mateau game. Oh, so all five New York teams play each other. In the playoffs. So you got the Knicks and the Rangers, but then you got how many of these games are against the other teams. Both the Knicks and the Rangers go to game seven in their conference championship games. They both go to game seven in their finals. And this is the crazy thing. The Knicks only play one less game than possible. So they beat the Nets in four. But right. then it takes them seven to beat the Bulls. It takes them seven to beat Indiana. And then it, they lose in seven, obviously, to Houston. So it was just so many games. And and then, of course, you have that whole thing with the Bulls. You got the game three where, you know, they they the Bulls, Knicks are up 2-0. And it's game three. And it's close at the end. And Phil Jackson calls up the play. And he wants Kukoc to take the final shot. Scottie Pippen sits it out. And so... It's just there's so many crazy stories, and then this is kind of really now. Had they, pl- they played the Pacers in '93 in the playoffs, too, right? Yeah, for some I, reason, I kind of remember the
2: initial Starks Miller run in was in '93.
1: Okay, yes, I believe,
2: the headbutt, it? like headbutted him, yeah,
1: yeah. And then there was the whole thing with Spike Lee where it was like they had a bet where it, it, it tell me if I'm getting this wrong, but it. If the Knicks won the series, then Miller would have to go visit Mike Tyson in prison. Right. And if Mm -hmm. the Pacers won the series, then Spike Lee would have had to put, was it Reggie's wife in his next movie?
3: Yeah. Yeah. That was the bet.
1: Crazy. So they beat the Bulls. They beat the Pacers. and my sort of dominating memory of, of at least the pre the pre finals time period was when they finally went to the finals and Ewing standing up on the scores table with his arms in the air and high-fiving fans and chest bumping his teammates. Probably the happiest Ewing ever was as a Nick was at the garden after winning that game seven against the Pacers to take the team to the finals. So they go against Houston. They, and I'm trying to, I don't remember off the top of my head. Let me just pull up the, sort of the way they, this breaks down. So they, they lose game one, they win game two. This is a back and forth series. They lose three, but then they win four and then they win five and we'll get to that. In a second, now it's Ewing versus Elijah Juan, and at the time it was maybe billed as this sort of twin towers, you know, Titan, you know, two centers, two Titans type of thing. I think if we're being honest, Akeem Elijah Juan is a much better player than Patrick Ewing.
3: I w- I hesitate with the word much. He mm, was, was definitely better. He was definitely better. I'm not going to make the argument Patrick was was better. Yeah, Hakeem was definitely better. Um, you could you could argue much. Yeah, that's debatable.
2: I wonder how much different it might be seen if Ewing had gotten this series, and then you know, I mean, obviously the Rockets win again the next year, but you know, would it be seen as a little bit? Closer or maybe a little more debatable if the Knicks had beaten the Rockets in this series.
1: So they go into game five, it's two to two and the Knicks beat the Rockets 91 to 84. It's a back and forth game and the Knicks are up at halftime and then Houston ties it after three quarters. Knicks come back and win 91 to 84 and this, unfortunately, is known as the O.J. Simpson game. I, as a Nick fan, am always sort of angry, might be an overstatement, but it always sort of bothers me that when you hear talk about this series, so much of it focuses on that Game 5 and that whole O.J. Simpson thing. And I almost feel like even historically, what happened with O.J. that night has kind of, obscured the actual series and it pisses me off on two fronts because i remember being an 11 year old kid and them cutting away from the game and not being able to watch it and then for the last 25 years i've just anytime anybody talks about the 94 world series all they talk about is oj simpson so that's always frustrated me a little bit um so they go into game five they lose game six at the very end and that was when Starks had a three, what he thought was an open three, and then Elijah Wan tipped the ball at that last minute. Is that right?
3: Yeah, I just it, an incredible, incredible play by Elijah Wan to get a hand on that. Yeah, and Starks had. I mean, I asked Starks. I was like, "What? You know how how do you feel about that last shot?" He goes, "It was 100 percent that was going in. There's no doubt in my mind that was going in." And he, he had he had 16 points in the fourth car- quarter. I mean, he was cooking.
1: He brought them back in that game. Yeah. And then they go to game seven and we don't need to belabor it. Um, Starks, two of 18. And I don't know whether this came from the book or whether this was just something I sort of remembered, but whether it was Starks saying it or somebody else, the fact of the matter is John Starks was not going to stop shooting because John Starks was a shooter. That was his game. And he just, if he was in the game, and they threw him the ball, he wasn't going to stop shooting. So I guess I kind of, Paul, have two, two questions for you. Um, and this has been discussed. This whole idea of whether, Starks, whether Riley should have benched Starks and gone to either Davis, and I think Riley at times has even said that maybe he should have gone to Rolando Blackman, which Blackman had barely played in the playoffs. And I think this was the end of Blackman's career. So is that just, I mean, obviously it's second guessing, but that always has sounded kind of crazy to me. This idea that they were going to put Rolando Blackman in, in the game seven of the finals when he barely played that year.
3: Yeah, I, I agree completely. And, and you get very different opinions on that all over the spectrum from people who were close to the team and people who are not that close to the team. Um, I agree with you. Uh, You know, Blackman, if I I think of it this way, if 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 Riley did something wrong, um, it's that he didn't work Blackman into the rotation or keep Blackman in the rotation so that Blackman was prepared to step in and and give Starks a few minutes at that time. I think. You know, Blackman was old. He had a back problem. His last couple of years with New York, he he was kind of a shell of his former self. But he was he was a real professional. He'd hit a lot of big shots in his career. Um, that being said, yeah, he didn't play. He didn't play at all. The whole finals. You can't bring a guy in in the fourth quarter of Game Seven after he hasn't played at all the whole series. You just you just can't do that. I don't care who he is. And uh, so for that reason, I. I I, I don't think Blackman should have been on the floor. Um, you could make an argument that Blackman should have been playing throughout the series and, and hence been available at that time, but I, I don't I don't view him as a realistic option at that point.
2: Yeah, I looked it up. He, he didn't play at all in the finals, like you mentioned. He only played one – he only appeared once in the Eastern Conference Finals for four minutes and then a couple of times in the Chicago series, but never for more than – what six minutes at the most and more often than not it was less than that so yeah I mean he hadn't played at that point in pushing a month his last game with it in the Indiana series was May 28th and when was game seven June 20 something so yeah it's and I guess I've been guilty of it as well of like oh it's Riley's fault and he should have done something but putting a guy in who hadn't done anything if he goes in there and looks totally lost then they crucify riley for taking the ball out of one of his best players hands so he was kind of a lot of that is hindsight
1: so as is normal here on hello old sports we are having a very robust but also a very long conversation i don't want to give short shrift to the later years because in some years the way the later years to me are almost more interesting than what we're talking about now so suffice it to say. Ninety four, ninety five. It's almost a carbon copy of the previous year. Basically, the same team. They draft Charlie Ward. They draft Monty Williams. I think they trade Herb Williams at some point. But Herb Williams is like a cat that you keep feeding. You get rid of him, in the next day he's back on the team. I read a story in in just ballin uh, when they they traded Herb as part of the Oakley for Camby deal, and Herb got a call on his phone down whatever time in the morning it was, seven o'clock, and he answers the phone and. He answered the phone. He's got his wife in bed next to him. And his wife said, Herb, what happened? He goes, oh, the Knicks traded me again. Just go back to sleep. And, so he was like, and then two days later, he's back on the team. But, and then later when he was the coach, it, all of a sudden he just would be the coach again for 20 games. But that's a, different, that's a different story. So 94, 95, I think Riley's getting fed up. This is the, he suspends Mason again late in the season. He had done it the year before he suspends Mason this time for longer. If I'm remembering correctly, he's getting fed up. There's a great book about um, the eighties Lakers by Jeff Perlman called showtime. And he talks about how the last couple years that Riley was with the Lakers, he was just totally burned out and he punched a window at one point and all this crazy stuff. Riley tends to burn himself out in places, especially when he's already, when he maybe when he's just lost and he feels like his team is on the decline. So, Riley's getting fed up. There's a power struggle and he's he's sort of secretly talking to Miami. So Paul, why don't you just talk a little bit about sort of the circumstances that led to Riley leaving town?
3: Yeah, I I, I think you're exactly right. There was there was he made a power grab. Um Dave checkett was elevated from Knicks president to Madison Square Garden president. Riley very much wanted to replace checkets as Knicks president. And of course, he wanted an ownership share. The Knicks made it clear that ownership share wasn't, wasn't a possibility. It was, it, it was just the, the Knicks were owned by Cablevision and ITT, two separate companies with big boards. And I spoke to Rand Ariskog, who is the CEO of ITT, about it. He talked to Riley about ownership share. Ariscog told me I could have given it to him, but I would have lost my job. The board would have ousted me. Um, it was just too much. Riley works better in, in the kind of one-on-one what you had with Jerry Buss in LA and then with Mickey Arison in Miami. He likes to have that one-on-one relationship with the owner and, and New York was a much more corporate situation. Um, so that wasn't happening. He and Chequette went back and forth to try and work out some kind of deal. it swore to me he was willing to make Riley team president. There's some um, evidence to the contrary. Um, and so ultimately Riley did lose a power grab there. He felt disrespected. Uh, I, I think you make an excellent point that, um, it, it had kind of run its course a little bit. Um, you know, Starks told me we love Riley, but we weren't really sad to see him go. Um, that, that he had worked them so hard for years. Um, and, and I think Riley also looked like I, I got as far as I could with his team. Um, I think that was a big factor. And so, you know, when he couldn't work out a deal or the deal that he wanted with the Knicks and with Checkets, and the more those guys talked, the more confrontational the negotiations became, the more he said, you know, screw this place, I want to get out of here. And he found in Miami, he found some place that was going to give him everything he wanted and more. You know, they, they made him president of the team and they gave him uh, ownership share. And that was something he was just never going to get in New York, and so he left. It's a hard hard to fault his decision, right? <laughs> and it's hard
2: to cast any sort of judgment on it when you look back at everything that's happened in his career with Miami. I mean, it certainly overshadows anything he did in New York, and when you factor in being an executive and LeBron and everything else, it's arguable that what he's done in Miami is more impressive than anything he did with the Lakers, even.
1: Do we think that he would still be with the Knicks 25 years
3: later? No, of course not. Um, Absolutely not because of James Dolan. (laughs) I mean, I just don't think – I just (laughs) – I can't imagine with Dolan's ego that that, – I I can't imagine that would have worked. So, no, I don't think so.
1: So, they bring in Don Nelson – Nelson is a very interesting guy. And you write about this in the book about how one of the things, one of his claims to fame was in the late 80s when he was coaching Golden State and he tried to get the seven foot seven minute ball to shoot as many three pointers as he possibly could. So weird guy with Nelson. Nelson has this idea that he's going to run the offense through Anthony Mason, which does not go over well with Patrick Ewing. I just want to take a brief aside here because you write in the and Mason obviously recently passed away, or um, not recently passed away about five years ago. You write in the uh, in the book about Anthony Mason and the basketball camp that he runs and how he they had to stop the game between Mason and the counselors in um, because and the and the and the campers I should say because he was getting too physical. I went to that basketball camp uh, summer of 97. I think I think they had already started to phase that out. And I have two stories, one of which came about from reading your book. There was one day where it rained and so the camp was all outside and we had to go find a local high school or whatever to play in. And I remember riding back with the coach, the guy who was running the camp in like his, you know, his van you know, me and some of the other campers. I didn't realize until I read your book that that was Jay Fiedler's father, which I thought was a really interesting thing. And I re- once I read it, I was like, oh, the guy's name was Fiedler. That's right. It was, you know, Coach Fiedler is going to give you guys a ride. And then the other thing that I have is my team played in the in sort of the end of the week championship game. And Mason was one of the refs. And my claim to fame is that the guy on the other team was going to inbound it. And... um as soon as he got the ball, I started yelling, call five seconds, call five seconds. And Mason called five seconds after I think about two and a half seconds. And (laughs) the guy Fiedler who was running the camp came over to him and was like, Mace, that was a quick five second call. So that's my, uh, that's my Anthony Mason uh, story. Um, But so Mason, they want to run the offense through Mason. Nelson um, comes in and what went wrong with Nelson? Was it just that he he got on Ewing's bad side or was he was he not right for the team? What's your read on that?
3: Yeah, I think um, um, both of those things I, I think he was a bad fit. Um, you know I, I understand the thinking, you know the thinking very much was, look we have an, we have a veteran team, an experienced team. They don't need to be driven as hard as they have been under Riley. In fact, we want to kind of have a little more of a laid back coach, which Nelly was. The other thing was, you know, under Riley every year, they were one, two or three in the league in in defensive rating. They were a fantastic defensive team. What they like, they lack offensive, uh, you know, ingenuity. I mean, the, the offense was dumping it to Patrick and, you know, if he's double teamed, kick it out. That's it. Um, so Nelly, Nelly was obviously very much an offensive coach, a great offensive innovator. And the thinking was, our defense is set. Let's have Nelly come in and open up the offense, make it a little less predictable, um, a little more creative, a little more movement. Um, and so that was the thinking. And the problem is that the, the Knicks – You know, it wasn't just Nelly. The Knicks are very much to blame. They were a very veteran team, accustomed to play in the way that they did. They said, "Wait, we got to Game Seven of the Finals playing this way. We're not going to start changing our style." Um, Particularly Ewing, who was a star player and viewed himself as a superstar, and it was like, "What do you mean you're not running the offense? What do you What do you mean you're running through? You know, Anthony Mason? You're not Mm -hmm. like no. He wasn't having that. Um, And uh, you know, Nelly had had kind of had issues with Starks going back to when they were together in Golden State, the very beginning of Starks' career. Uh, Starks couldn't stand him. It seems like it was mutual. Um, and Starks was extremely well-respected in the locker room. So right away, like pretty early on, he'd lost two of the pillars of the franchise. Um, I think Nelly wasn't the right guy for New York. I think you need a certain personality to coach in New York. I think um, you need that intense uh, – riley van gundy thibodeau type personality uh nelly was laid back and and um i think the media kind of ran all over him because of that um but i think yeah i think he i think ultimately his style was not a good fit for that team although it might have seemed so at the time it wasn't a good fit um and uh and, and I and I think the players deserve a, a little of the blame, too. They had a, they were kind of set in their ways and unwilling to change and try new things.
1: So they go through, they fire Nelson halfway through. Ironically, it's funny, because you think of that team as sort of a down year. They were 47 and 35, and they went to the second round of the playoffs. Uh, they actually um, had a better record under Nelson than they did under Van Gundy. Nelson was 34 and 25. Van Gundy was 13 and 10. And then 97 is when they make they start to make some real changes. Mason goes to Charlotte. They bring in Larry Johnson. They sign Allen Houston. This is when they first bring in Chris Childs. They draft John Wallace out of Syracuse. And this 97 team is another one that is sort of the source of a lot of regret because – They'd played Chicago well. I think they'd been two and two against Chicago that year. Maybe they'd played them well. They'd beaten them late in the season. They're up three one against Miami, and PJ Brown flips Charlie Ward in late in the game. The the heater up big, and so the Knicks. All these guys were on the bench. Ewing was on, Ewing was on the bench. Starks, Oakley, and so. This is that famous rule where if you come off the bench during a fight, then you're suspended for a game. And so the PJ Brown, I think, gets suspended for two games, but then so many guys get suspended by, for the Knicks and they have to heat up, they have to suit up five guys. I'm sorry, they have to suit up nine guys against the Heat. And so they end up having to do these suspensions alphabetically. And the Knicks go into this game six against the Heat that year and you write in the book, I think it was Mike Breen said it was the loudest he had ever heard Madison square garden. This is another one of those. I remember this game and just how crazy the atmosphere was. And the Knicks almost won this game. They came really close. They led into the fourth quarter and then Miami just pulled away and then Game Seven was another one of these. Uh, you know, it only ended up being an eleven-point game, but if I remember correctly, it was sort of, you know, the Knicks were down big early in that Game Seven against Miami. So that's another sort of the, one of those "what if" years. If what if they had be, um, what if they hadn't had this fight, and they'd beaten Miami, would they have had a chance against Chicago? I still say they probably wouldn't just because, as we talked about, nobody ever beat Jordan. But that's another one of those crazy what-if years. What if they hadn't had this fight against Miami late in that game five? All right. So we need to start getting ready to wrap this up. So let's just talk a little bit about the end. So they go into 97-98. And I remember, I don't know. Paul, if you're familiar with this, you said, uh, and I remember this from when it happened from when I was a kid, you said that you read a bunch of Sports Illustrated articles and everything. I don't know if you came across this. In 97, 98, Sports Illustrated picked the Knicks to win the NBA championship. And I remember at the time just thinking it was crazy, but that 98 team was really good. It was it was kind of, they were too deep at every position. They had brought in... Um, they brought in Buck Williams as sort of a forward off the bench. They had um, they had Childs and Ward at point guard. Uh, Starks had been sixth man of the year. He'd move over for moved over for use. And I think they had Chris Mills that year also. So this was this may have been the deepest team that the Knicks ever had. But then obviously Ewing has this horrific injury. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that?
3: Yeah. So. Um... Yeah. I mean, you know, you talk about 97 with uh, a major what if, and it certainly was um, a lot of those guys think they would have beaten the Bulls this year. Of course, if they would have, who knows, but, um, but because of that, there was a great deal of optimism coming to come into the next year. And uh, cause it was, it was basically the same team. Um, but that I, the 97 team was really kind of, unfortunately the end of Patrick's prime. Yeah. Um, and then in 98, during, you know, the 97, 98 season, uh, about midway through the season, he, uh, was fouled hard by Andrew Lang of, of the Bucks and came down on his wrist. And it was, uh, it was a serious wrist injury. They they thought it was career ending, wrist, possibly career ending wrist injury that bad. It was atypical for, for basketball, more of like a football injury. And, uh, <clears throat> so the next, you know, they, the next squeaked into the playoffs anyway, Um, barely over 500 and um and once again they met the heat and uh and there was another fight which was significant to the series of course the larry johnson alonzo morning fight um patrick ended up coming back in the second round during their series against the pacers but he hadn't played in several months he wasn't in top shape They, they weren't accustomed to playing with him it just wasn't you know, the, the chemistry wasn't there, and of course, they lost to the Pacers. That Pacers team was also a really good Pacers team. I know uh, Rick Schmitz told me he thinks that was the best Pacers team they had. And as we noted earlier, that Pacers team put the Bulls to seven games, and, mm-hmm. and that seventh game was they, they, they really had the Bulls in the corner. Um, so who knows how that plays out. But uh, yeah, there were, there were a lot of high hopes for that team.
1: And then we get the lockout going into the 98 99 season Ewing as head of the players union is front and center in the lockout that lockout in general, I think sort of engendered some bad feelings among the fans um, as all player stoppages as all work stoppages in sports tend to do. And some of the players made some comments that were maybe not, um, not the most politically savvy about, you know, having to sell one of their cars to, you know, to eat during the strike. And I think it was Kenny Anderson. Maybe I, I, I forget the specifics, but yeah, it
3: was Kenny. Yeah.
1: Kenny, another Nets star. One, another one of Andrew's favorites, the nets. Um, so
3: I have a problem
1: with, but what was that? More modern day nets. (laughs) So, um, so basically, and we don't have a ton of time to get to do all this, but they trade for Latrell Sprewell, for Starks in 99. Uh, so what was it that made them finally willing to move on or ready to move on from Starks in 99? It had he just kind of had he, had he run his course or was there anything specific?
0: Um,
3: I think that was more an opportunity thing. I think it was, it was spree was available. You know, mm-hmm. they weren't, they weren't looking to move Starks. They were more open to moving Starks than they have been in previous years. I think Starks, Starks' athleticism had begun to decline a little bit. He wasn't quite the same player he was, say, five years earlier. Um, so they were they were more willing to listen. Um, but it it wasn't so much that they wanted to move on from Starks as Starks was the price to pay to get Sprewell.
1: And I know some of his teammates had gotten a little fed up about like what did he bring his golf clubs to a playoff series yeah, or something yeah. like that when they were yeah. getting ready to to be knocked out. So that that 90 and then they also they don't just move on from they don't just move on from starks they move on from oakley and they trade oakley for charles camp for for for, they trade oakley for marcus Camby, and so this 99 2000 not 99 2000 season but the nine those two years 1999 2000 those two players are that's sort of the the last gasp of the ewing knicks and I remember those teams really fondly with Sprewell and Houston, Camby, uh, Kurt Thomas came to the team, Childs and Ward, LJ finishing up, and you, you had all the moments. You had Houston with the um, with the shot at the buzzer, uh, the you know the one that bounces off the rim in Game Five against the Heat, and then you have the LJ four point play. So, just sort of a couple of questions to close it out. First of all, you write in the book about how by this time. Every Nick fan's uh favorite name, James Dolan, has kind of taken over. And you even talk about when they fire Ernie Grunfeld as the general manager in '99, how part of that was due to the fact that Dolan didn't like Grunfeld's wife sitting in the luxury box that she shouldn't have been sitting in or something. So, so just maybe just talk a little bit about that. We sort of get started with this pettiness in the late years of the glory times, we're already started seeing this sign of these, of the horribleness that's to come with James Dolan.
3: Yeah, that, that, you nailed it. That was really the start of it. It was 99. 99 was really when he took over the Knicks. Um, you know, his father had been there running Cablevision and brought him into Cablevision vision top position a, a few years earlier. And 99 was... He had been involved with the Knicks a little bit, but '99 was when he really took over the reins and 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 got involved in the everyday affairs of the Knicks. And within a few months, um, yeah, he demanded basically demanded that they fire the general manager. and And there were other people calling for his head. and And Grunfeld was kind of having it out with Van Gundy in public. I mean, there were problems there. It didn't it didn't come out of nowhere. But yeah, Check Czechos told me that story. They have they have a suite there. It's a suite for a kind of like the high rollers where, uh, you know, the, the, the celebrity row type people are welcome to come in and mix it up and have free drinks and food and schmooze and all that. So, yeah, Dolan, you know, Dolan, Dolan's surrogate called its uh, and said, you know, uh, this guy Mark Lustgarten, who was basically running the garden for, for Dolan, called its and said, uh, Jimmy wants you to fire Ernie and check it said why and he said because he's bringing his his wife is bringing people into this you know party suite which is completely inconsequential just complete just ridiculous um so you have like the ridiculous pettiness aspect to it and in, in a more general sense this is when uh you know dolan starts interfering with the running of the team which has been a huge problem ever since um uh it's you know really the talent and then, of course um a couple years after that Checkets leaves in large part because he can't work with dolan and check is a guy who played a huge role in 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 building that franchise and, and maintaining and keeping them as you know competitive throughout that that whole decade and so um yeah that that was kind of the first, the, the beginning of dolan rearing his ugly head
1: and then the only other thing we should probably talk about is Ewing. And this is sort of where the whole they're better off without Ewing thing starts. They they go to the finals without him in 99. Now, he'd, he'd gotten hurt, I think, well, like game two against Indiana the year before. Or, the, sorry, the series before. And um, But then they do manage to make it to the finals. They, they get smacked around pretty good by Duncan and the Spurs once they get there. But they do go to the finals without Ewing. And then in 2000, they... They lose the first two in Indiana in the conference finals. Then Ewing gets hurt in game two. And then in game three and four, Ewing doesn't play and they win both games. And then Ewing comes back. They lose five and they lose six. So Ewing obviously was in bad shape physically at that point. But you also write about how he kind of had gotten a little bit isolated in the locker room by that point. I think maybe it was Spreewell who said that, that Ewing didn't really he didn't feel like Ewing was part of the team at that point. He'd kind of separated himself from his teammates by that point. Is that right?
3: Yeah, I th- you know, I think I think Patrick was always a little reclusive by nature. And Patrick's got kind of a guy that has to really trust you before he gets close to you and opens up to you. And he had a lot of guys on the team that he was close with. Starks was his best friend on the team, and then they traded Starks before that 99 season. Um, so, I, you know, I I don't know how much – I don't know that he, like, made an effort to separate himself so much as it took a while for Patrick to get comfortable with you. And a lot of those new guys, Camby and Sprewell and, uh, you know, Kurt Thomas, and they just – they hadn't been around it very long, and he didn't, hadn't developed a, a comfort level with them. The other thing is, I think Patrick, I think he was soaking a little bit. I think Patrick, you know, it, it, it had really in that 99 season, Patrick wasn't there and they went to the finals without him. And it really kind of became Sprewell and Houston's team and maybe even to an extent Camby's team as well. And so I think, you know, he looked around and, and realized this isn't my team anymore. We're not going to me in the post as much as we were. And I think he was uh, – and then, of course, you hear there's all the chatter about the Knicks being off, better off without him. And I think I think he was sulking a little bit. So I don't, you know, I don't think it's like he. I don't think it's a case where he didn't like his teammates, or or I, I think he just. I think he looked around and it was like, "Wait a minute, all my guys are gone. You know, the team's not being run through me anymore. Like, I do I even belong here anymore?" Go ahead, Inch.
2: I was just going to say it also, you know, you get to that point and he's a little older than those guys. So they're not really his contemporaries anymore. And all of, they're the guys who replaced a bunch of his buddies. So even if he's, if it's not a, an intentional thing, there's going to be that distance there that wouldn't be there when you're 27 and all the other guys are, the same age, now you're in your mid to late 30s and these are younger guys. Is just kind of a thing that would happen naturally as well, in addition to the pain that he was in and trying to, you know, have to muster the physical strength to play night in and night out at that point in his career.
3: I think that's a great point. And then another name, too, is Herb. Herb was there through the '99 season um, and Herb was like 40 at that point, so very much to the age and generational thing, mm-hmm. he was still very close. He, he, he became very close with Herb Herb was gone, and you're right. Now he's whatever he was at that point, thirty seven years old, and it's a bunch of twenty somethings. Yeah.
1: And they trade him, and they tried to trade him once. I still remember it was uh, I was at a Yankee Ranger game on a Monday. I think it was. It was like a makeup game. It was an afternoon game in the summer. My friend and I went, and we got back to our cars and heard that the Yankees. Or I'm sorry that the Knicks had traded Patrick Ewing, and they were bringing in Vin Baker and Glenn Rice, only to have the trade fall through because one of the four teams that was supposed to be involved, there was some sort of issue, I don't even remember. And then a month or so later, they managed to pull off the trade. They bring in just Glenn Rice, and they make the playoffs that year. Lose to Toronto in the first round, and then the year after that, Van Gundy quits, and then it's one thing and another and another. And in a lot of ways, maybe they they may be coming out of it now, but in a lot of ways, you can almost draw a line from that trading of viewing to basically – Every, you know, every move that they made for the next 10 to 12 years, it's sort of been a cascade, you know, they, 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 they sign Antonio McDice and then he gets hurt. And then there's the Marberry years and there's Isaiah and there's this, and it all kind of starts with that day in August when they finally part ways with Patrick Ewing for the first time, at least. And then when they, they actually get the job done a month later. So Paul, I want to thank you so much for doing this. This was uh, obviously a very um, quick, but a very long at the same time, rush through uh, ten or so years of Knicks history. Uh, the golden years. The first team that I was ever really a fan of in any sport was those Knicks teams of the starting in about the late '80s and. This the book is called The Nicks of the 90s. Ewing Oakley Starks and the Brawlers that almost won it all. So check it out. Great book. Very much enjoyed it. Also, as I mentioned, published by McFarland, one of my favorite publishers of sports books. So Paul, thank you so much. Andrew, did you have anything to add before we signed off? No,
2: I think we covered uh, a lot of it. You know, they were some of the the early teams that I remember in my childhood and just because it never had the full happy ending doesn't mean it's not. Uh, there's not a lot of positive memories and especially in light of the last 20 years in Knicks basketball, uh, what we wouldn't give again to be frustrated that they lost in the Eastern Conference Finals too many times. So
3: Exactly. Right.
1: Well, Paul, thank you so much for doing this.
3: Thank you guys. Thank you guys so much for having me on. I enjoyed it. All
1: right. And uh, we hope you all enjoyed this Journey into the Knicks of the 90s with the author of the book, The Knicks of the 90s, Paul Nepper. Until next time, I'm Dan Newman.
2: And I'm Andrew Newman. Goodbye, old sports.
0: Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Join George Bozica, the president of the PFRA, and myself, John Bozica, each month.